Well, this morning, uh, we are not having services. Obviously, we've gone back to uh, a video feed uh, right now. Uh, we are filming this on Friday night with Hurricane Ida uh, focusing in, it appears, on us. So we have made a call and want people to be safe and for those who wanted to, felt the need to evacuate uh, to go on. But we still want to get the word out, word of God out to you. So we just believe God is on his throne and is not threatened by all the things that bring us fear. So this morning, I uh, invite you to pray with me. Almighty God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for your great, amazing love. A love we could not deserve, a love we could not earn. And yet, God, you have given us your grace. We pray for all those who are in, in the path of a storm. And, Father, we know that hurricane season goes on several more months. We pray that during this season you will protect lives. That, Father, um, folks will use good wisdom and good choices along the way. But, Father, we also know that hurricanes aren't the only storms out there. So we pray that you will minister in all of the different struggles that are facing your people today. And those who don't know you, asking that you will minister and you will move in a powerful way. We continue to pray for the people of Afghanistan, Father, other places where uh, war has just become a way of life. We pray for those who are trying to still recover from uh, the earthquake in Haiti. And again, Father, all those who have been in the path of this storm already. Uh, So now we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you again for your great love for us. And as we finish this look at discipleship today, I pray that you will help us to come away from uh, this time of looking at this purpose, this reason for existence. Help us come away with a more firm commitment to be the disciples, the followers of Christ you have called us to be. I ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. On January 1st, 1929, the University of California's Golden Bears was facing off uh, against the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Uh, Midway through the second quarter, Roy Regals, who played center on both offensive and defensive lines, is playing a role similar to today's modern defense nose guard or nose tackle, picked up a fumble by Tech's Jack Stumpy Thomason. Just 30 yards away from the Yellow Jackets' end zone, uh, Regals was somehow turned around and ran 69 yards in the wrong direction. This is how he described it. I was running toward the sidelines when I picked up the ball. I started to turn to my left toward Tech's goal. Somebody shoved me, and I bounded right off into a tackler. In pivoting to get away from him, I completely lost my bearings. Uh, His teammate, Benny Lom, chased Regals screaming at him to stop. Known for his speed, Lom finally did catch up with Regals at California's three-yard line, tried to turn him around, but Regals was immediately hit by a wave of Tech players, tackled back to the one-yard line. Uh, the The Bears chose to punt rather than risk a play so close to their own end zone, but Tech's Vance Marie blocked Lom's punt for a safety. 
score was now Georgia Tech with a 2-0 to zero lead. During the wrong way run, Georgia Tech's Bill Alexander was yelling at his, his team on the sidelines to sit down. He's running the wrong way. Every step he takes is, is to our advantage. Broadcaster Graham McNamee, not exactly the, the pivoting of cool, calm sportscasting, was yelling into the radio, what am I seeing? What's wrong with me? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Well, after the play, Regals was so distraught, he just had to, he had to be talked into returning to the game. And he told his coach, Nibs Price, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. And Coach Price responded, rather wonderfully, I think, Roy, get up. Go back out there. The game is only half over. And Regals did play that second half. And in fact, he played one of the best games of his life that second half, including blocking a tech punt. In addition, Lom passed for a touchdown and kicked the extra point, but it wasn't enough. Tech ultimately won the game and their second national championship, 8-7. to seven. The safety score after the wrong way run made the difference in the outcome of the game, increasing the significance of Roy's mistake. Now, in spite of that loss, um, the example of how distraught Regals was able to pick himself back up, return to the field, and play so hard during the second half has been used in the decades following, pointing out what an amazing task he did of getting up and fighting through to play his best. Now, Regals thankfully developed a good sense of humor about the wrong way, Regals' nickname, Uh, He would often write other athletes who made similar mistakes, encouraging them and letting them know life goes on. But the name Wrong Way Regals followed in the rest of his life. And many people forgot or just didn't care the stellar finish to that game. But he knew, he knew the rest of his life, he fought through to finish well. Now, it's become almost unspoken law, axiomatic that Finishing well is more important than starting well in order to succeed at anything in life. But for those of us who are people of faith, finishing well is not just about being successful. Father and son, Donald and George Sweeting, wrote the book, How to Finish the Christian Life. And in that book, they said, the phrase finishing well means different things to different people. For some, finishing well means ending life with a long, cushy retirement. For those who believe he who dies with the most toys wins, finishing well means having a lot of stuff. For still others, finishing well means ending with pain-free life. When we use the phrase finishing well, we mean following Christ to the very end of our lives, finishing his assignments for us and hearing his Well done, good and faithful servant. And that, my friends, is the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Jesus. A commitment to press through whatever life throws our way and keep on focusing on the task ahead of us, becoming the people we are called to be. 
And I can think of no better example of that than the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to his beloved son in the ministry, Timothy, Paul was writing to Timothy in our text this morning, preparing him for the worst, that Paul was about to die. So let's hear what he had to say to his son in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Hear with both ears and all of your heart, please. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I want you to listen carefully, because in this text, Paul was able to tell Timothy, I'm ready to leave this world. I've accomplished the task I am here for. Now, when we hear those words, we receive a challenge, a challenge about our personal walk with the Lord. See, I believe that we as disciples of Christ need to commit to finishing our call in this life to be the disciples we were redeemed to be. We gather our sources together, our other brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us grow. Uh, The Word of God and all it has to tell us. Times of intense worship, both personally and corporate. We gather everything together with an express purpose. Help us to be the people you have called us to be. The people you have redeemed us to be. And with that in mind, I want us to listen to several implications that are drawn by Paul's Timothy, uh, Paul's farewell to Timothy. Implications that can literally give direction for our lives if we want them. The very first implication we meet in Paul's words to Timothy is that the life ahead of us is challenging. And Paul really, truly understood this. You see, Paul used several images uh, to show that he had come to the end of his life. Now, the first couple of are what we're going to look at right now because this whole letter carries with it the shadow of Paul's impending death. But now, Paul is going to explicitly say it. I'm about to die. And he was very certain that he would not be spared a martyr's death. And he indicates this with two images. The first, he said, my life is already being poured out poured out for the cause of Christ. Now, that phrase translated pouring out would be something that either Jew or Gentile would understand. Uh, Jewish folks had a part of their sacrificial system, and one of the sacrifices would pour wine out at the end. It was kind of the, the last statement of giving to the Lord that finished the concept of sacrifice. But in the Roman world, Gentiles uh, pretty much after every meal would take a cup of wine and pour it to the ground as an offering to the gods, giving them a drink of their bounty. So the image is clear. It's an image of sacrifice. It's an image of being ready, Paul said, to pour out my life, which quite literally in a short amount of time would mean the pouring out of his blood. And it's a logical conclusion to what Paul believed the Christian should do. And we get a picture of that in Romans 12, 1, when Paul told the Roman church, I therefore urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul said we need to be ready to commit our lives into the hands of God. Everything that we are, everything we hope to be, give it to God as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, with a full understanding that at some point in time, we might, and Paul was, carrying that to a a logical conclusion, if need be, I'm ready to die. But he uses another image here. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. And the word departure was used in two different ways in Paul's day that are significant to what he's talking about. First of all, it was used for the idea of weighing anchor. A ship that's ready to go out on its its journey pulls the anchor up, sets its course, and sails out to sea to accomplish the goal of getting through its journey. Now, in Paul's case, as he weighs anchor, his ship is ultimately taking him home. It's a homecoming for him. And he's ready. I'm ready to go. But it could also be used in a term that folks in Bay Vista will be familiar with, being a church very much influenced by military. It was talking about striking camp. Soldiers who are now given a command by their officers to to fold up the tents, to get themselves ready They're going to go on a march. And again, when Paul strikes camp in this world, he's going to have his final home ahead of him in glory. And so, with these two images, weighing anchor, departure, pouring out, Paul said, I'm ready to leave this world. And that's behind the verse immediately preceding our text. Because Paul told Timothy, as for you, use self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why is he so strong? Timothy, you've got to do what God has called you to do. Why? Because he's going to say, as for me, it's time for me to leave. And Paul knew that the church needed people like Timothy and others around who would take up the cause, who would press forward in bringing the gospel to the world and helping churches grow up in their discipleship. He knew he was facing death. And he's preparing Timothy for that. But it's important to note, Stephen Cole has pointed out, when you look at this text and you look at this old man saying it's time to say goodbye, these are not the words of a discouraged broken old man. There is no despair here. There is no defeat. There is no cynicism. There is no fear. As he faces his imminent execution, Paul was at rest, confident in the way he had spent his life and calmly assured as he faced death by decapitation. Paul was seeking to encourage Timothy at this moment in time, his son in the ministry, Assuring him, I am ready to die, firmly committed in his faith to the Lord that he had served for 30 years. There is no regret in Paul's words, not even the hint of it. And as he gets ready for death, again, he's showing that he was a man who practiced what he preached. 
when he told the churches in and around in Ephesus the need to be armored up and be ready for a spiritual battle, he, in verse 13 of chapter 6 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Paul is ready to stand. Yes, he's going to be executed, but it is not as a cowering person who is afraid. He's ready to stand to the glory and honor of his Christ and face what is ahead of him. Now, you and I, we are faced with an important choice of how we live this Christian life. That's what discipleship is all about. How do we grow? How do we become what we are called to be? Each of us who have a relationship with Christ also have a calling in our lives. By the grace that comes to us through faith, we became part of the body of Christ. Now, as members of that body, we are called to live a life of faithful following, discipleship. And folks, I don't care if you're a Christian who is six months old or you have known the Lord 60 years, discipleship never ends until the very end of life. We are called to be faithful. And we are expected to grow up in our spiritual life, just as your biological parents expected you to grow up into mature adults. But unfortunately, it's possible to neglect that call. We can lose sight of what Christ wants us to be by getting too engaged with the world and not not seeing beyond all the, the bells and whistles of a worldly system. We can become disobedient children. We're caught up in what we want rather than what Christ reveals he wants for us. So at some point in our walk with Christ, we face the same challenge that Israel faced when Joshua told them at his end of his life, Joshua 24, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are called to make a choice. Live for Christ. Accomplish the task. Do what you were called to do. And we can choose, I believe we can choose by God's grace to live a life that honors the Lord. And I don't think this is wishful thinking. This is not playing a game of pretend. It's not the glad game of uh, Pollyanna. We can live a life that honors God by trusting in his grace to sustain us, by trusting in his strength to cause us to persevere. And this is our choice. Are we going to face the challenges of a crazy world, a world of hurricanes, of COVID, of inhumanity to man? Are we willing to face that and press forward to be what God wants us to be? Which leads us to the next implications. Because if we do that, We will understand that the call to remain true is definitive. It defines who we're supposed to be. The call to remain true is definitive. Paul's chosen images of his life defined who he was in Christ. Now, I believe the next three images that Paul uses are all athletic images. No one, not everyone agrees with me, certainly. But I believe they're pointing to athletic events, and I will tell you the reason why. But you do know, if you've read Paul much, you know he likes using athletic imagery. 
He begins by saying, I have fought the good fight. Now, some people said that's a military image. It's not athletic. Well, technically, the word that is used for fight here is a word that was used in the ancient world of the games, uh, the Olympic games. And quite literally, that phrase can be translated, I have contested the noble contest. Now, the word translated in that to be good, or here, noble, does not imply that Paul's saying, I'm the best runner that has ever run. But in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul encouraged Timothy to fight his fight, to contest the noble contest. He's pointing out this is the noblest, the grandest run of all, living for Jesus Christ, becoming who you are called to be, serving the Lord. Now, the message is not an exact translation, um, but I, I do find it helpful at times. It can be a pretty good commentary, giving you one man's take on the words, and I do like Peterson's take on this phrase. In the message, the phrase is tra- translated, this is the only race worth running. I've run the noble race, the greatest race of all. And then he says, I've finished that race. Now, clearly, Paul has served the Lord for over 30 years. This is not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. And it's the race of his life. He's about to end his life. But it's more than just that. The emphasis is not just, I have finished my race. I've come to the end of my life. He's saying, I have finished my purpose. I have finished the reason God called me and redeemed me. The The apostle to the Gentiles my purpose in ministry. I have run the marathon. Now, perhaps the the greatest legendary run of all times was the marathon. It happened during the Battle of Marathon and was one of the decisive battles of the world. In it, the Greeks faced off against the Persians. And if the Persians had conquered, the glory that was Greece would never have flowered in the world. And the Greeks were fighting insurmountable odds. There was no way they could have won this battle. And so... They sent a runner. His name was Pheidippides, a soldier. And uh, there's a shorter version that is the legendary and, and most well-known. But apparently, Pheidippides was sent to run to Sparta, uh, some 25 miles away. Um, well, to, well, he ran to Athens, 25, but he ran to Sparta, which was even further. Why did he run? Why didn't he take a horse? Because the terrain was too bad. He ran to Sparta and said, we need reinforcements. And the Spartans said, we're not going to help. We're in the middle of a festival. We'll come when we're through. And Pheidippides, in a moment of bravery, knew he had to get back to his soldiers. And he ran back, all the way back, to tell them no help is coming. And he made several different trips. It is estimated by those who kept record that he may have run 200 miles in 10 days. Uh, a, a grueling run that would have been horribly impossible, it would seem. But when he came back and the Greeks hear the news, instead of cowering, they literally charge against the thousands of the Persians. And the Persians were so taken back by this flank system and this charge that they pulled back. And they got in their ships, sailed around the Cape, their intent was to go by sea the rest of the way to Athens. 
And so Pheidippides had to run that 25 miles to Athens, 40 kilometers. And the story goes, when he got there, he ran to the magistrates of the city and said, Rejoice, we have conquered. And then he died. But the rest of the story is that he said, You have to be ready. They're coming by sea. He made the most amazing run of his life and he completed it and fell to his death. In honor of Pheidippides, when the modern Olympics began in 1896, they set the marathon as a race of 25 miles, 40 kilometers. And then he says, I've kept the faith. Now, if this is true, all three are athletic events, and, and I think it points, the fact that in verse 8, we're told Paul says, I'm going to be rewarded the crown of the athlete. I think this gives credence to the idea, even I have kept the faith is an athletic image. And it can be translated, I've kept the rules. You see, the ancient games athletes made pledges, solemn oaths, we are going to honor the training we've done, and we are going to keep every rule of the game. And harsh penalties could happen if you decided to cheat. So he's saying, I have been faithful to the pledge that I made to run the race God has given me. Now, some have pointed out but that, that that same word can be used in business. I've kept the trust. I've honored my contract. And others say, well, no, Tom, Paul's just saying I've kept my own personal faith. I've never lost faith in what Christ could do for me. Now, whichever image, if I'm correct, and it is athletic, or if it's business, or if it's personal, the image, the point is clear. Paul was faithful. He was faithful to the cause of Christ, faithful to the call of his life, and because of that, he's now ready to go. Now, again, as for you and me, how we live will either show us to be faithful or people who did not live up to our potential. When we come to the end, will we have been faithful? I believe essentially the ability to show who we really are at the end of life, at the end of journey, is being built right now by who we are becoming to be here and now. And so our lives can reflect that Christ truly was the single most important person in our lives. Or our lives can reveal that at best he's been at the periphery. We dust him off on Sunday when we go to church. We'll occasionally say um, grace at a mealtime. We may read a Bible verse here and there. But he's not at the center part of who he wants to be. So I need to ask, are we choosing to order our lives by the purpose God has set for us? Do we understand whatever I do in life, father husband, businessman, labor, whatever it may be, I do it as a Christian wanting to live for Christ. Are we doing that? Are we content to be a part-timer in the kingdom of God? There's a very strange experiment in the 1600s in New England among congregational churches. Uh, They were finding that more and more of their second-generation people in their churches were not able to give a strong testimony of conversion. They had been baptized as little ones, 
but they had never actually shown, I have faith in Christ. And, they, and because they had not shown that conversion, they could not in turn have their little ones baptized. So a group of people got together and said, we're going to offer a halfway covenant. You've been baptized. You can therefore have your children baptized. But before you can be a full-fledged member of the church, uh, you have to prove that you've been converted. And there were, it was a controversial decision. There were those who said this will be a great way of retaining people. They were saying, people saying, it's the most horrible thing we've ever done. In the end, many of those who said halfway membership is okay left evangelical faith altogether and became Unitarians. And then those who said it's a horrible idea were some who helped pave the way for the first great awakening. There's no such thing as a halfway Christian. There's no such thing as a part-timer. We are called to be full-fledged, focus on what God wants us to be. So I believe we can choose by God's grace to achieve our purpose in life. We can make a decision like Paul, asking God, by your grace, enable our journey of faith to move so forward that when we come to the end of life, we will come to the end giving you glory and honor. And it's grace that is going to supply that constantly upward climb to becoming the person you were saved to be, the grace of God. And we must be committed to that climb. Because it's the only way that we can live the authentic life as a Christian. To be an authentic Christian means you are a Christian by grace. Paul put it this way to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. How were we saved? How did we come to faith in Christ? By grace. How are we going to live the life he wants us to live? By grace. Yielding ourselves to his control. Yielding our hearts to his heart. And becoming who he wants us to be. And part of what drives that desire, I want to live a life that honors you. I want to live the life of faithfulness so it defines me as a believer as one who is true, well, the final implication answers that. The hope of pleasing our Lord is incredible. Now, I'm about to say something that there are some biblical scholars and folks who are going to be uncomfortable with. When we look at this text, Paul clearly Paul looked forward to standing before Christ to receive a beautiful reward. He describes it as the consequence of his living for Christ, the crown of righteousness. Now he's talking about a crown, not like a, a tiara or a diadem. This is a laurel wreath that would be given to an athlete at the end of their, their contest. Paul knew he was facing the inevitable, but there's no fear because he knew what was out ahead of him. William Barclay has beautifully said, in that moment, Paul turns from the verdict of men to the verdict of God. He knows in a very short time he's going to give his life. He knows what Emperor Nero is going to decide about his case. He knew 
Nero's verdict was death. But he also knew what God's verdict was. And so Paul expressed that he was looking forward to a day of rewards. George Eldon Lab points out on the judgment seat of Christ, that point in time when Christ's followers' lives will be put to the test. Now, this is where it becomes uncomfortable for some people. Some people say that's just not Pauline. That's not what he would say. In fact, some people take this text to suggest Paul couldn't have written 2 Timothy because Paul would never talk about getting something that we've earned. But R.T. Kendall has pointed out in his theological, systematic theology, understanding theology, does your idea of reward matter to you? Does the idea of reward matter to you? It mattered to Paul. He wanted the reward, the prize, the crown. But listen, he didn't take it for granted. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27, if you've ever struggled with this verse, this might give you a new spin on it. Kendall points out, Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's not talking about the prize of eternal life. He's talking about the prize that he's talking about here. That crown, that well done. And he says, I don't want that to happen. First Corinthians is one of the earliest of the books written in the New Testament. One of the latest is Second Timothy. And so he's saying... Now, I know I'm ready. Now I know what lies ahead of me. Now, that may embarrass you, but it shouldn't be. The Word of God talks about rewards. The Word of God says this. This isn't something I've made up here because I want to make you feel good. This is what the Word of God says. And the point is, God's people can be rewarded on earth as well as in heaven. Don't take it for granted But Paul was clear, this was not a reward of his own. Christ, the righteous judge, the Lord, he's talking about Jesus here, is the one who's going to give the reward in connection with his return when he comes. On that great day of the Lord, we stand before Jesus Christ as his children. Paul and all those who love Christ's appearing are going to receive a reward, righteous actions that demonstrate their longing for Christ's return. This is what's happening. To say that I long for Christ's appearing doesn't mean I'm going to make every eschatological end times conference I can. It doesn't mean I'm going to read only books about the second coming of Christ. It doesn't mean I'm going to be talking, pointing my eyes to the east all the time, waiting for him to appear. Second Titus tells us what longing for the appearing of Christ will bring about in our lives. Chapter 2, 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Folks, when I say Jesus is coming back, it's not just Jesus is coming, whoopee, he's going to take us away from all the pain of the world. When I remember he's coming back, that means I want to greet him in such a way as would please him. I want my life to please him. Now, it's true 
The grammar doesn't help us here. The crown of righteousness may refer to the crown as the reward for righteous behavior, or it could be the righteousness that is awarded by Christ in the Christian's life when their salvation is made complete. But it's not about, this is something I earned that I want to show everybody what a great person I am. I've lived my life in such a way I want to know it has pleased him. And that's what the the crown is about. Now when Christ puts our works to the test, what will they reveal? I believe that 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 describes the judgment seat of Christ. Paul warns the Corinthians who are really living lives that aren't pleasing to Christ. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If it, what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. If your life is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, you are saved. But how you lived your life is what will be tested. Now, how can we have the idea that this isn't about salvation? Charles Ryrie, a theologian that I don't agree with in a lot of ways, I think has hit it here, forgiveness It's all about justification. I've been justified by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Reward is about the review that has happened of my life. How did I live my life? And even after the review, Ryrie points out, nobody's going to be crying and weeping because there are no tears in heaven. We're not even told what the nature of the reward will be. If heaven is heaven, what difference does it make? We get rewards because... As the Bible suggests, this becomes a proper motivation for Christian service. I want to live in such a way as to please my Lord. Not to earn my salvation. I just love him. And I want my life to please him. There are actually at least four other promises uh, within the word of God of reward. In 1 Thessalonians, 2 Titus. James 1, 1 Peter 5, 4. The point is, I believe, we can choose a life by God's grace that receives a well done from our Lord. The recognition. You lived your life for me. You served me faithfully. And I want you to know, I know this. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, there are several different parables about the end of time. In Matthew 25, 23, Jesus says, The master who has returned will tell the faithful servant, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. And in chapter 25, beginning in verse 34, the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus gives an expected hope for those who are just living their lives in ministry. 
They're not looking for reward. They're just living as godly people. And he says, the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they're going to protest. We don't deserve this. When did we do any of that? When you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Again, they weren't trying to earn their way to heaven. But as people of faith, they were living a life of faith that said, we will show compassion and care and minister to those who are hurting. May that be our heart. May we come to understand we need to live life in such a way to honor Him, to give Him glory, And when we've pleased him, to know he has seen it and known it. Robertson McQuilkin threw in one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard. Poetic talking about the struggle. I'm getting old, I'm getting ready to die. Has my life been meaningful? And he wrote, it's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life, life with you, unsoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish not well, that I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart, Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of a spirit grown mean and small, fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burdened to be borne by those who brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, Brighter at the end, Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of tattered gifts, rust locked, half spent or ill spent. A light that once was used of God, now set aside. Grief for glories gone or fretting for a task God never gave. Mourning in the hollow chambers of memory, gazing on the faded banners of victory long gone. Can I not run well until the end? Lord, let me get home before dark. Thou or me decays. I do not fret or ask or prave. The ebbing strength now wings me from Mother Earth and grows me up to heaven. I do not cling to shadows cast by mortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about my, me my cocoon, vainly struggling to a hostage of free spirit pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate in lingering pain, body distorted, grotesque, or will it be a mind wandering untethered among light fantasies or grim terrors? Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask, Lord, let me get home 
before dark. Lord, let my life please you. When I come to the end of my life, may it not be to discover all I left undone. May it not be filled with the regrets of of commitments made and forgotten. But may it be the life you wanted for me. May I please you. So let us remember the life ahead of us is challenging. There are going to be a lot of storms in life. And we've got to be ready to face whatever storm comes our way to the glory of God. The call to remain true is definitive. When all those storms are raging, will we stay true to what God has called us to be? The hope of pleasing the Lord is incredible. So by the grace of God, let us commit to a life of discipleship and growth. That when we come to the end of our lives, we can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. Today I'm asking you, commit yourself to the marathon. Give yourself to the Lord and ask him to help you the whole journey long. Almighty God, I thank you that you love us. And I thank you that this is not a task in our own hands. We have to be willing to commit. We need to be willing to yield. We need the hunger after righteousness, the thirst after holiness that only you can give us. God, I pray you do give it to us. That we will understand discipleship It's not something for little ones or brand new believers. It is for each one of us who name the name of Christ. And I pray that you will put it in each of our hearts that we want to live for you the life that ultimately reveals who you are in our lives. Help us, O Lord. I pray in the strong name of Jesus.